Luke chapter 9 is our sermon text for this morning. Luke 9, verses 37 through 50. 37 through 50. This is God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, without error. It's given to us for our good. With all that in mind, let's give our attention to its reading. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, He is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. We all know that person that needs to win at everything. These are the people that can make board game nights anything but fun. They seem to take things too seriously. They usually end up hurting people's feelings. And oftentimes, nobody goes to bed or goes home happy. Perhaps you think that this is just a a certain characteristic that some people have. But actually... The competitive spirit, the need to be better than all of those around us, or at least the dream to be better than all of those around us, is, is a spiritual genetic defect that we all carry. We want to be the best. We want to be recognized as the best. This shows up in all kinds of ways. Yes, many people are not as intense as some of those who can turn board game nights into pure miser- misery. But we instinctively compare ourselves to other people in countless ways. We daydream about what it would be like 
to be better than them or to be the greatest at something. We watch with intense interest ward shows who year by year crown hundreds of different specifications of best. The best so-and-so of such-and-such. We have this drawing to be the best. But Jesus came to address this condition in our hearts in terms of ultimate categories. He does so in this passage today. He begins by confronting the 12 apostles and he confronts them for first their unbelief. Their unbelief is an inability to see why Christ has come and what his kingdom has come to do. As he confronts their unbelief, he is addressing this condition of their hearts that compels them to think in these natural or earthly or lower terms that we so often do. We want to be noticed as being better than those around us. We pacify this instinct in us a great deal so that generally people will remain our friends. But still it plagues us. For most of us it plagues us from the inside. But the good news of Christ's kingdom is that when the ruler of the heavens and the earth comes to save you, when he makes you his own, when he calls you to worship and to glorify him, his creatures will never have to worry about being the best, for we have been saved by the best. But that is not all, for while Christ shows his power as king, he shows that he also embraces his path of suffering before glory. It is knowledge of this truth that drives out the fear within us that we have a lack of success or glory or status in this life. Rather, we can embrace the will that our Heavenly Father has for us and we can simply live trusting in Him. Those are the things that this passage teaches us. That is what the kingdom of God teaches us and that is what we indeed aim to consider today. Let's turn then to this passage beginning in verse 37. We pick up Luke's account of Jesus just after the transfiguration. So Jesus has now come down off of the mountain. And what we need to see is that this passage is tied together with the transfiguration. See at the beginning, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. So there's a sense in which Luke is wanting us to read this passage in light of what happened at the transfiguration. We are meant to keep it in mind. This was an amazing event. Jesus specially chooses three apostles, brings them up onto the mountain. They see his glory shining like lightning. And we hear the voice of the Father. They heard the voice of the Father from within a cloud of glory saying, This is my beloved Son, my only Son. Listen to him. What we see from this passage today, today though, is that this transfiguration episode does not leave the correct impression upon these three. They did not learn from it what they should have. As Jesus comes down, he is met by a crowd. Luke specifies to us that he is also met by a father, a father who is desperate. He's a father of a young boy in need. We read in verse 39 that uh, this young boy has something that sounds like epilepsy. And it it very well probably is that. But we also read that it's caused by a demonic spirit. 
And this is not just an ancient doctor's understanding of medicine. Some people have tried to say, well, you know, he, he's just afflicted with this. The demonic activity is, you know, relate that more to uh, an ancient world's understanding of medicine. No, uh, there was a, an evil spirit that was afflicting this boy and having epileptic type of, se- of seizures. We expect this. We've talked about it a couple of times. Why was there so much demonic activity when Jesus was on the earth? We would come to expect that it would be so because oftentimes when God is up to something, demonic forces will often copy it in their own twisted ways. So it should not surprise us as we read the Gospels that Jesus was having to confront demonic presence much more often than we see perhaps in today's world. This man was desperate because his suffering was intensified by this being his only child. The idea of the only child is something that should be fresh in our minds from the transfiguration. God the Father speaking, saying, This is my beloved Son, my special, only begotten Son. Listen to Him. And so as we confront the suffering of another man's only child, our hearts ought to ache for Him. And our hearts ought to ache even more because He has done all that He can to try to relieve this constant affliction. But He has not been able to find the help. It's even more desperate because the nine apostles who stayed behind while Jesus went up to the mountain should have been able to help. We remember at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus gave to his apostles power and authority to proclaim the good news, to cast out demons in his name, to heal sicknesses. Jesus gave them this authority. Their inability to help then shows us that there's something amiss. They're fumbling around while Jesus is on the mountain. They cannot seem to figure out why they cannot heal this young boy. Jesus' response has a bit of exasperation, doesn't it? It's kind of like a a tutor trying to teach a student and you have to go over the same thing for about the hundredth time. It can get a little bit old. Jesus then sounds a little bit exasperated, of course not in a sinful sense, but he says, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay and put up with you? Who is Jesus rebuking here? I think it seems very clear from Luke that he's not rebuking the Father. He's certainly not rebuking the Son. He's rebuking his apostles, specifically from what we know from all of chapter 9 and what we have seen in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has shown them so many miraculous things. He has taught them about his power and his kingdom. Chapter 9, he has introduced this idea that he will suffer. He has given them authority. Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, and still they're slow of heart to understand. His rebuke here in Luke then should be read as a rebuke for the apostles. So what is he teaching through it? What is he teaching through it? He's showing us first that the apostles have a lot of learning to do. They have a lot of learning to do. And this is going to uh, increase the tension of everything throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is going to set his face to Jerusalem. He knows that the cross is coming. He knows that his suffering is coming. And he needs to, to teach the truths about his kingdom to his apostles so that they might continue the mission after he is gone. The fact that they are not learning then will add tension to the story as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross. In his rebuke, Jesus calls them faithless. Faithless, without faith. Whenever Jesus 
takes a step back to address what he calls a generation. Wicked generation, faithless generation, these kinds of things. He is speaking against a poor disposition of the heart. He can do this to the leaders of Israel. He can do it as here with the apostles. The leaders of Israel don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles of Jesus believe that he is the Messiah, but they misunderstand Jesus' power. They have their own idea of what the Messiah should be and do. Their conception of the Messiah does not allow for the kinds of things that Jesus has been teaching them. He has begun to introduce here in chapter 9 the necessity of suffering, the reality of his coming death. And this is not a blissfully ignorant kind of thing. We read in this passage that what? They were afraid. They were afraid to ask Jesus what he means by this. The fear that they are feeling is probably because they are unwilling to hear what Jesus really means by this prediction and this call to suffer. Jesus said, if you would come after me, deny your cross, take up your, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's really bad news. So perhaps the apostles are thinking, well, if we ignore the bad news, maybe it just won't come up again. If we don't press too deeply into what Jesus means by this, perhaps it'll just sort of pass us by. Jesus calls them faithless. Is that legitimate? Why do we think Jesus uses that term? I was thinking about this, and one of the things that has been noticed by scholars and pastors and theologians as they study the Gospels is that so often you see Jesus making it a point to withdraw and to pray, but you really don't see the apostles doing that much, do you? In fact, oftentimes when they pray, they'll do things like fall asleep, they'll get distracted, they're not able to follow through with all of those things. Prayer is the, as the great theologian puts it, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. We've been studying prayer in our catechism series. It's the chief exercise of faith because of the disposition of prayer, isn't it? Just the posture of prayer communicates something. Bowing before God, bringing your adorations before Him, confessions and all of your requests, acknowledging that it's not by your own power that you live and move and have your being. Prayer is the way that we communicate that we are leaning upon someone else for the strength and the power that we need and asking that God would give it to us. So who do we see that in? We see it in Jesus. In Jesus' human nature, though he was fully God, in his incarnate body, he still needed to rely upon the Holy Spirit's power to rest in the truth of what he came to accomplish. Remember, at the end of his life, it's not like he was excited about going to the cross. He needed to rest in his Father's will. So he prayed. He prayed to constantly be refreshed in the mission that the Father had sent him to do. He prayed to rest in the truth that that all that the Father had called him to do was worth it. It was not thrilling to know that he had such a road of suffering. And so Jesus, as he's trying to teach his apostles this, keeps coming up against their inability to hear him, their unwillingness to hear him. How long must I be with you? So if their problem is their faithfulness, what is their solution? What is their solution? The solution will really not come until the end of the gospel. 
their mindset does not change until they see the resurrected Christ. It's amazing to think, isn't it? That even after Lazarus is resurrected from the dead, still they are slow of heart to understand. It's perhaps easy for us to say, how could the apostles have been so dull? Why didn't they get it? It's important that we don't do that, though. It's important that we don't do that because we need to realize the power that the resurrection has had upon the people of God. And the power that the Holy Spirit has had upon us since Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was able to bring the Christ's resurrection power to the people of God. That was not the beginning of the Holy Spirit's activity in God's people, but it was for the first time that Christ's resurrection power could be brought to bear upon the people of God. And rather than pointing our finger at the apostles and saying they're so slow of heart to understand, perhaps we should use it as a teaching moment for ourselves to evaluate that how well do we do with allowing God to transform our minds, as Romans 12 says. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How well do we do allowing God to transform our minds around these truths? Do we spend time in scripture reading and prayer and reflection, allowing God and the power of God to reshape our thinking? We'll give you an example. As our minds become transformed around these truths, we would never get wrapped up in the notion that Jesus came to give us total and victorious and triumphant living in this life. That's a teaching that's common, perhaps rampant in the modern church. Those who would say that Jesus died for sin, yes, Jesus died for sin, and kind of glance over that quickly almost. But then they would say, but his work on the cross was also to defeat our sickness and our difficulty and our suffering in this life. No, that's not why Jesus came. That's not what the work of Jesus does. That kind of teaching is dangerous in so many ways. And perhaps most dangerous because it leaves those who suffer in a cloud of dust behind us. It leaves those in the midst of a valley back behind. It says, good luck. Get it together. Have more faith. Understand better what Jesus has done for you. And the truth is that there are many people on this earth whose lives are not filled even with the smallest notion of triumph or glory. Those who suffer from cradle to grave or a large majority of the days in between. And here's what's important to know. It's important to know that God does not love them any less. Jesus has not saved them any less. And thinking that he does or he has is thinking that is straight from the enemy. We really need look no further than the apostles. These are the men who walked with Jesus, who saw him, who were there at Pentecost, seeing this, this wonderful, powerful outpouring of the Spirit. And so we would expect that in their lives we would see the, the, the clearest expression of what it means to live and to abide in Christ and experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Did they experience total and victorious and triumphant living in this life? No. They all were made to live lives of scorn and shame. They were clothed with power from on high, but they had really no earthly glory. That's the problem in thinking that way. Get our 
our minds twisted around these earthly categories, status, power, all of these things which, which Jesus so clearly rebukes in his teaching. The Apostle Paul doesn't say that the power of God gives us this victorious living on this earth. What does he say? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons. In other words, he's saying there is no power on this earth that could separate me from what Christ has done for me. The miracle that Jesus does in this passage in healing this boy and showing compassion upon this boy and his father is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. We see in other, in other healings in the Gospel of Luke, oftentimes it is an only child that he heals, the son of the widow in name. But what is Jesus teaching us about it? As he does this miracle, as he heals this boy, even in the midst of another seizure, he heals him. And everyone's marveling at what Jesus is doing. Everyone's marveling at the glory of God. By the way, uh, Luke puts that parallel in verse 43 to show us that Jesus shows forth the majesty of God. When you are watching Jesus work, you are watching God work. Verse 43, wonderful little parallel there. But he takes that opportunity to look straight at the twelve. Because as everyone's marveling, what is the temptation? What's the temptation in their life? Once again, they say, wow, look at the power of Jesus. Look at the glory that we are going to experience now in this life because of how powerful Jesus is. He is the Messiah and we are the ones who are closest to him. So Jesus turns to them and he takes it as a teaching moment. He says, hear carefully what I am going to say to you. Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The saying here is something like, hang these words on your ears. It's as if he's saying he wants this teaching to be like an earring hanging from their ears, whispering these truths to them constantly. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. The twelve are working uh, on their plans for the office that they're going to have in the palace of Jesus. Peter's thinking, will I get a corner office? How am I going to decorate it? Will I be vice regent? Will I be secretary of state? What will I be? Jesus says, listen carefully. Don't don't pay attention to all the marveling and the glory that you think means that you're going to experience the same earthly glory. We're not riding into Jerusalem to victoriously take the throne. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. The inability for them to understand, as I said, is going to continue to build this tension. What will open their eyes to the truth? It will not be until the resurrection of Christ. But what we see in this passage is astonishing, right? Jesus is trying to teach them something. And think about what happened on the the Mount of Transfiguration. What does the Father say? This is my Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. We can understand the nine who weren't there for not immediately being able to apply that. But you would think that Peter, James, and John would be able to help their brothers along in this. This is the first thing that Jesus is saying after the Father has said, listen to him. What he says, listen to it. Take it to heart. Believe it. Follow it. Trust it. And then Jesus prefaces what he's saying by, hang this on your ears. This is very important. 
So what happens next is truly shocking. They start arguing about who is the greatest. So Jesus decides to show them what he thinks about their discussion in a way that's a little bit unsettling. He brings a child before them, saying that he who welcomes the child welcomes him. Whoever welcomes him welcomes the one who sent him. Although the apostles don't have a fully worked out doctrine of the deity of Christ here, they know enough to know that the Messiah has been sent from God. So they know that that's who Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is teaching them a lesson through uh, social status and hospitality. We need to learn a little bit about the ancient world in order to understand what Jesus is doing here. In the ancient world, the people you received and the people you hosted, the people who would come into your house, the people to whom you would show hospitality, all of this had implications for how you were perceived in terms of your status. So let's say, just so that we can understand, that people's status could be anywhere from a one to five, one being low, low status, five being the highest of a social status. Let's say your status is a three. So you're right in the middle. Not bad, uh, but room to improve. So if you're a three on the social ladder, let's say you had somebody who was a two and you received them and you were hospitable to them. Would that help or hurt your social status? It would help it because that would confirm your position as a three. Those who were a little bit below you, you could receive them and it would confirm your position on the social ladder. If you were able to receive a four or a five, well, if you did that enough times, your status, social status, your standing could be raised up to that level. Who is willing to be seen with you? These are important questions in the ancient world. Who wants to be seen with you? But the thing about a child, receiving them, showing hospitality to them, a child has no status in the ancient world. It's not that children were, were worthless. Everyone knew that having and raising children was an important part of life. But they just weren't seen as having any social importance. They were not a one. They were a zero. So it would serve no purpose to receive a child. It would do nothing to help your status. They could not confirm you in, in where you were. And of course, they could add nothing to your status in general. So in verse 48, Jesus summarizes his thoughts. Whoever welcomes this child welcomes him. In other words, he is shirking all of these categories and saying, what I have come to do is not operating within these confines. This is not what I have come to do. Jesus came to minister to anyone, regardless of their status. And this explains to us why Jesus often has to work within the categories of the poor, the sick, the helpless, and the children, in order to show that his kingdom does not take into account worldly power and status. Because the spiritual genetic defect that we all have is that by default, we automatically begin to take these things into account when we're evaluating other people. But if we are truly saved by grace... If we are saved by God's grace alone, and not on the basis of what we have done or who we are, then it can only be this way. It's a, it's a way to magnify and exalt the grace of God in salvation. If we're saved by grace, there is no way that worldly categories of social status, acceptance, scales of gradation can ever factor into it. 
God's grace is what saves us. Thus Jesus ends his summary by saying, he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. That's not the best translation that we have in that Bible before us. It shouldn't be greatest, it should just be great. When this word appears in verse 46, there's, there's a, a degree of comparison. So when they're arguing, they're arguing about who is greater or greatest. But the form of the word changes in verse 48. The comparative degree is taken away. So Jesus says, it is uh, he, he who, is, who is great, not the greatest. Jesus just says, it is he who is great. What we are learning here is that it is Christ's kingdom in which we see that competitive striving after status is taken away. The Christian life is not about looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ and seeing how far can we advance to be like Jesus. Trying to to be better than the person next to you in terms of how Christ-like you are. Because our life in Christ and our growth in Christ, what do they do? They do not exalt ourselves. They do not advance our name. They glorify the name of God. They magnify the grace of God. It all goes to his glory alone. So often we think of status in in terms of the the groups to which we belong. The tribalism that that plagues so many people throughout all of the history of the church. uh, You know, who, who accepts you? What groups do you run with? All these kinds of things. And John shows that he's having trouble grasping what Jesus is saying. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's unable to understand what Jesus is doing here. So he says, Jesus, here's this guy who doesn't even travel with us. Notice that John does not attack anything about what he does. He just says the only thing that's wrong with him is that he is not one of us. Jesus says it's not about that. It's about doing work in my name. That's what the gospel does. The advance of the gospel, when we say with one voice, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one people under the headship of Jesus Christ, given eternal life in his name by the grace of God. Jesus uses these three distinct teaching moments, a compassionate healing to assure our hope A rebuking of our instinct of seeking our position, seeking status in the kingdom of God. And showing that to belong to him goes deeper than our human tribal allegiances. And all of these things we see that to belong to Christ means in many ways to identify with what the world can find shameful. But this is part of our suffering before glory. And by the Spirit's power may we embrace it in faith and in hope for what our Savior has won for us. And may we trust in him always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your gospel. We thank you for the power of your word. May it go deep into our hearts. May it teach us, inform us, confront us, shape us, mold us. All of these things, Father, we give into your hands and ask that by your Spirit, You would exalt and magnify your name in this world and in our lives. For all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We end our worship service this morning by singing number 318. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Let's sing verse.